Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes. That's the book of the preacher. Or in the Hebrew it says that's the book of the Kohelet. It's concerned with life under the sun with the sun. Life under the sun with the sun. To avoid life degenerating into an experience of vexation of spirit or that, ex that reaching out trying to get a hold of things and ending up with only two hands full of wind. The writer, the Kohelet, suggests three great principles. One, that, one, that we fear God. Second, that we keep his commandments. And third, that we trust in his justice. We are now studying the second of the great messages of this book. Namely, God's sovereign control of life under the sun. God has set the times for all things. He has given to each of us our task. He has given us the equipment we need to accomplish our task. He has taken up his residence within us. The Lord Jesus now lives in our hearts, and he promises to work through us the accomplishment of his will and do that which will last for eternity. God does sovereignly control our life here on the earth during this, our days under the sun. But there are some who find what they think are exceptions to this. They point out to us that there are ways in which God does not control life under the sun. We have noticed three of these last week in our study together. The presence of injustice, the fact of death and mortality, the prevalence of oppression. And we saw from the study of God's Word the answer given to us in the Scriptures to each of these objections. We cannot go over them again this morning, but if you were not here last Sunday, we would challenge you to be sure to get a copy of the tape that is made and read and study with, this, with us and see God's answer to these objections raised by men concerning his control of life under the sun. We have also, now moving on, beginning with verse 4, we come face to face with a, another series of objection. And we've entitled these, Will the Real, the Successful Christian, Please Stand Up? The first of these objections, which is actually the fourth raised by the Koheleth, as he presents this subject, is that of rivalry. Notice, please, beginning with verse 4. And I have seen 
that every labor and every skill which is done is a result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. In this verse, he is setting down, he is making note to us what it is an accepted way of living on the earth. Rivalry is a common phenomenon of human life as we know it, especially in our culture. From infancy, we are conditioned to think that competing in order to the, be the best, that that is a responsible and highly prized virtue. We measure a man's success by the fact that he proves himself to be superior to other men in his field of endeavor. We seldom check to see what the man has actually accomplished. No, he has reached a higher rung in the ladder, therefore he is successful. Christians, even those fairly conversant with the Word of God, accept this as a proper form of behavior. We Christians, great as successful, those who perform better than others. Those who make more money, those who obtain more possessions, those who secure a higher position, they are the successful Christians. Now the Koheleth asks, what has this to do with the fact that God sovereignly controls the life, the times, the tasks of his people on the earth? What has that to do with what Paul wrote? Well, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. You see, in answer to this, the Koaleth gives us two proverbs, and the first is in verse 5. He says, the fool folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. The living letters put this in a rather terse way, saying, the fool won't work and almost starve. Now, the Koheleth is not here advocating this as a proper lifestyle. He's pointing out that this is the way of a fool, the way of a man to whom God has not given his grace. He also points out that this is the way of self-destruction. So he's not advocating this as a way of life. He is identifying it, however, as a way that some people take. They react to this syndrome of competition that is in our world 
by copping out. They fold their hands, literally, they embrace their hands. And they do not work. Now, some of them do this because of laziness. They do not want to spend the energy. They don't want to study as they must study. They don't want to work hard as they must work if they're going to accomplish, if they're going to achieve in our society. They settle back. They produce a minimum effort to produce a minimum result that they can get by with. You know, my mother used to quote a verse from Proverbs to me every Saturday morning when I wanted to sleep in. She used to say, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come like a vagabond. Every Saturday morning when I want to get a little extra shut eye, I still hear her to this day. The Kohelet is not advocating such a way of life. Others, however, cop out for a different reason. They don't get involved in the competition of life for another reason. They're afraid. Oh, they wouldn't say they're afraid, but they are afraid. They're afraid that they cannot achieve. They look over and see what Joe is doing, and they see what Harry is doing, and they don't think that they can measure up to that, and so being afraid of the blow that might come to their ego, they adopt a lifestyle that is obviously not in competition. They fold their hands. They do their thing. But you notice, the Koheleth gives us a second parable here. In verse 2, he's, in verse 6 rather, he says, one handful of rest is better than two fistful of labor and striving after wind. The King James Version puts it, better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Now, there's a difference of opinion among people as they read this verse. Some as the uh, uh, living letters reads this as, a, as advocating laziness. Here's what they say. It is better to be lazy and barely get by than to work hard when in the long run it is all futile. I can't accept that because that disagrees with the meaning of the text and the context. He has pointed out that such a lazy procedure is the way of fools. He has pointed out that the expending a minimum effort to secure minimum results in self-destruction. That's not the way. Rather, if you look at these two proverbs, you'll see there's a play on the word hand. In the one proverb, first of all, it speaks of the hands being folded. In the next proverb, it speaks of one hand being filled with rest. And then it speaks of two hands being filled by means of travail. 
You see, what the Koheleth is doing here, he's not advocating the way of the lazy man or the way of the fearful man. He's advocating, nor is he advocating the way of the man who gets involved with competition. And he is going to claw his way up the ladder, pulling this man out of his way and replacing himself in that position. He's not talking about that at all. He's not advocating that we dig in with both hands and get them full and end up with only hands full of wind. He is advocating that there is a way of filling the one hand with rest. Jesus himself told us this. You remember what he said? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Come, put your neck into the yoke alongside of mine and let me teach you. For I am meek and lowly in heart. I know how to do this work correctly. I've been disciplined to it. So come and put your yoke, put your neck into the yoke alongside of me and work with me and you shall find rest for your soul. And then he says, my work is easy. My burden is light. You see? This is the better plan. Not living life in competition with Joe and with Harry and with Jane and with Jill, but discovering what God's task is for me and proceeding through the power and strength of Jesus Christ living through me to proceed to do that job which he has given to us. This is God's way. This is the better way. Will you look at Romans chapter 12 with me? An interesting verse. We've studied it just not long ago, but look at it again. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. In verse 1, he exhorts us to present ourselves to God and be ready to serve him in whatever way he wants, even with sacrifice. In verse 2, he tells us not to be pressured by the world into its pattern, but to let his word transform our thinking that we do his will. And then in verse 3, he says this, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. There was a statement made by a great evangelist. He said, I want to burn out for God. You know, that sounds impressive, doesn't it? Wouldn't you love to burn out for God? Bless your heart, no. I see too many burned-out jalopies along the freeway. Paul put it another way. He says, I want to finish my course. God has planned a time for my life, and each time in it, he has planned a task for me. He has given me the gifts necessary for that. He has indwelt me with the Spirit of Christ to empower me for that. Not that I will be better than Joe or better than Harry, 
but that I can finish the course that he has called me to, that I can accomplish the job he wants to do through me, which will be and last forever. That's the better way. That's the way that God calls us to. Will you turn as an air very precious and wonderful verse over in the book of Hebrews? Have you ever wondered what is the way to, to live life peacefully? Have you ever been trying to get out of the rat race and, and, and get out of all the hustle and bustle of things? And, and would you like to accomplish things? Would you like to have that one hand full with rest? Now look at in Hebrews chapter 4, and in verse 10, there's a precious verse. For the one who has entered his rest, what has he done? Why, he has himself also rested from his works. Now, that's the way it is to be saved, isn't it? How are we saved? By trying to work and accomplish our own salvation? Bless your heart, no. The Bible tells us to him that worketh not, but believeth on the Lord Jesus Christ, who on that cross of Calvary did the great work for us and put away all of our sins. But now we leave our own works and we trust only in his work. And thus we're saved. And so it is the way we live the Christian life. It is not by taking our two fists and trying to do all that we can do and making sure that we claw our way to the top. It is to recognize that Christ liveth in us. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Not I and my strength and my abilities and my competing with others, but Christ living in me. I now take the gifts that Christ living in me has brought to me. I take the talents that Christ has created in me. And by means of these, I let Christ live through me. And the work that I produce is the one hand full of rest. And that's the better way, ceasing from my own work and effort, trusting Jesus who lives within me. I am able to be a successful Christian, living to the praise and to the glory of Jesus Christ. And then the Goheleth moves on to a second, or a, 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 actually the fifth, problem that confronts men when they think of God controlling life under the sun. And that has to do with relationships. And he points out to us, first of all, in verses 7 and 8, the vanity of sacrificing human relationships. Look at it in verse 7 and 8. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, For whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity. 
something that passes away quickly. It is a grievous task, that which brings only pain and sorrow. You see? The statement is concerning the utter waste and the vanity of sacrificing human relationships for the purpose of making money, for the purpose of climbing the social ladder, for the purpose of gaining political and economic power, for the purpose of increasing one's influence, for reaching a higher rung in the ladder of, quote, success. And while we're doing it, we sacrifice. We sacrifice our wives and the pleasures and the relationship that they have a right to expect from us. We sacrifice our children and the time that we should be giving with to them. We sacrifice our friends. In fact, we don't have friends. We only have those that we use as we climb up the ladder of success. This is not life as God plans it for the Christian under the sun. This is the self-life. This is the worldly life. And yet you find many pastors involved in just this sort of life. You find many Christian workers involved in just this sort of life. Now, in opposition to this, the Koheleth points out to us a series of proverbs beginning right there with verse 9 down through verse 12 that points out to us the value of human relationship. There, look at verse 9, will you please? Look at verse 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. He says, establishing and maintaining human relationships increases your ability to achieve. The second thing he points out is in verse 10. He says, for if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. He says, maintaining and keeping relationships with your wife, with your children, with your friends, provides help in achieving God's will in your life when you need it. Look at verse 11. He says, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? He points out to us that it is as we build our relationships with our wives, as we build our relationships with our children, as we take the necessary time to build our relationships with people. That's where warmth comes 
We're out there and we sacrifice our wives and we sacrifice our children and we sacrifice our friends in order to achieve what we think is our goals. We become stony-hearted and bitter with the cold. I was visiting a rest home the other day and in it was an old man sitting in a chair, all hunched over, a vegetable almost. The nurse in the home, you said, do you know who that is? And she mentioned the name of a man who was once a powerful economic figure in the Los Angeles community. And she says, he sits there day in, day out, and no one visits him except his banker. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Where was his wife? Where are his children? Where are his friends? Or did he crucify them all as he rose in the ranks of men to the place of superiority? He's cold. Look at your own life. What's in store? What's ahead? He says something else. Look at verse 12. And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn down. Building human relationships provides for us the protection we need in the day of battle, in the day when things get tough and hard. Oh, dear ones, listen to me. Human relationship is the plan of God for every life. He did not put men and women on the earth to live alone. When he saved us, when he washed us from our sins and clothed us in the righteousness of Christ, what else did he do? He baptized us with the Spirit into his body. He put us into his church that we might learn to live with one another, that we might love, that we might enjoy each other, that we might work together in the accomplishment of his purpose and not alone. Loneliness is the product of sinfulness, the sinfulness of Adam's race. Death produces widows and widowers. Divorce produces lonely men, heartbroken women, and shattered children. Fear and apathy produces in the hearts of many loneliness because they want to sit in their little cocoon and they say, I don't have any friends, but they're afraid to come out of their cocoon and touch another person for fear they might be rebuffed. They say, oh, uh, my nose isn't beautiful. Oh, my face isn't the way it should be. Oh, I am not handsome, therefore people are going to reject me. So we sit in our cocoon and we say, oh, look at me, I'm no good. And therefore we're afraid to come out lest people would tell us we're no good. And we sit alone. 
because we're afraid. You remember the film that came out not long ago of this rather plump, ugly-looking specimen of humanity. You know, he was lonely. And he saw there in the corner another young lady sitting, a young, a young lady sitting all alone, you know. She was lonely. He was lonely. Everybody else was having a ball, and he was there alone, and she was there alone, and he looked over at her and thought to himself, she looks like a nice person. He turned to one of his friends, and he said, do you know that girl over there? The friend looked over, and he said, that dog? You don't want anything to do with her. You know what he did? He looked at her, and she wasn't Miss America. See? No. She wasn't even Miss California. In fact, she missed quite a bit. He looked at her, and he listened to his friend. You know what he did? He spent the rest of the evening being alone, and he went home alone. And the story went on and told about how alone he was until one day he got the courage and he told his friend, nuts to you. And he went over to this girl and he discovered that she didn't really miss anything. She was a beautiful person. And friendship came into their life. He was afraid. And he was destroying relationships because he was afraid. He listened to the talk of other people and the advice of other people, and who cares? He reached out. God blessed him. See, that's it. You know, we must work to establish human relationships. Marriages are not made in a church. That's where the ceremony takes place. Marriages are made in the home. When you take the time, man, to fix the plumbing when it should be fixed. Will somebody please stop up my wife's ears right now. <laughs> when you take the time to go out there and mow the lawn and get rid of the weeds before so you can find the front door again. Marriage its not only kissing the gal and telling her how beautiful it is, it's working at it to make her meeting her needs. Families. Families are not the product of conception and birth. That's easy. Families are produced by hours and hours of time spent together, time playing together, time working together, time listening. The younger generation will tell you that's the, that's the rarest commodity of, of the American home. But families are made by taking time to listen and then Friendships. Friendships are made 
by reaching out, helping someone, touching someone, being friendly with someone, not critical of them, accepting them in their imperfections. After all, look at how many you got. See? Not being critical, not saying, oh, so-and-so isn't so-and-so, and so-and-so isn't so-and-so, not that, but reaching out and accepting the person with the imperfections, not smothering with demands, but cooperating in friendship. Relationships have to be earned. They have to be made. They have to be molded. They have to be cemented. And then remember this, that you're not alone. Christ is in you. It's not I, but Christ living in me. As you reach out to that other person, it is Christ living through you. Let him live. Let him show his friendliness. Let him show his love. Reach out and establish relationships. This is very important. And then the Koheleth hits one more item. It's a rather difficult phrase if you look there at the end of chapter 4. He says, a poor but wise lad is better than the old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become a king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. This is, there is no end to all the people, to all who were before them. Even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after wind. Do you know what that means? I want to tell you, these are some of the hardest verses in the Bible to understand. What in the world is this globity-glock saying? I worked more hour trying to find out what this passage means than almost any other. I'll tell you what I believe it means. Here's the story behind it all, what I believe it means. There was a very wealthy and strong king, and he ruled in a certain kingdom. He had strong and loyal followers for a time. As he grew older, he rejected new ways. He tried to keep his kingdom by crushing oppression and by putting those who opposed him in jail. But finally his people turned from him and they followed one of those that he put in jail. And they made him king. Now when this man became king, he was very popular even more popular than the former king. But he too grew old. And he too wouldn't listen to advice. And he too was not popular with the next generation. And he said, this is really a vanity and a grasping of wind. 
The significance of it all? Isn't it there? How much we sacrifice for popularity. How much we spend our time trying to reach the top that we will be the greatest. How many times and how many hours we spend trying to please people and make everybody happy. Only to discover, only to discover that before very long, somebody comes along who makes them happier than we've been able to make them happy. And so, it's goodbye, Joe. Hello, new king. You see? That's not the way. You see, the great truth is that God is in control of life. He has given us the Lord Jesus Christ. He is living in us, and he can live through us to his praise and to his glory. He has a plan for our lives. He has a time for our lives. He has a task for our lives. And the important thing is not that we're popular. The important thing is not that we're the greatest or the best. The important thing is that we finish the course. That we let God work through it that we take the one handful that he gives us and we devote it to him and we use it for his purpose, for his plan, for his glory, to accomplish what he wants through us. Not that we'll be popular, not that we'll be the greatest, but we will finish our course for the glory and praise of God. And when we reach that place of glory and stand before the Bema seat, and he says, will the real, the successful Christian stand up? We'll be able to get to our feet. Not because we're the greatest, but because he lives through us. And we have trusted him enough and let him do it. Heavenly Father, oh, take thy word and put it into our hearts. Build it in. Send us out of here not to be among those who fold their hands like fools, not to be among those, our Heavenly Father, who reach out with two hands and try to become what they're not supposed to be. But oh, our Heavenly Father, help us to recognize who we are, that we are indwelt by your Spirit, that you're living in us, and we can trust you to, who have set our times, you who have given us our task, you who have equipped us, you who tell us that you'll work through us to accomplish your eternal plan, help us to trust you and to go on and do our task day by day, knowing that in the end, we will finish our course with praise upon our lips for him who loved us and gave himself for us.